the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. Of Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sake on Air, the world's first and only podcast dedicated to exploring and expanding the dialogue around Japan's iconic beverages, sake, shochu, and importantly, awamori. Recorded here at the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo, I am here today with my good friends, Sebastian Lemoine. Good afternoon, Chris. Good afternoon. And Justin Potts. A good afternoon it is. It's a, it's a lovely day here in Tokyo, as it always is, it especially is. when we have extra free time. And we are going to be talking about something that doesn't get a whole lot of airtime on our show. Ryukyu Awamori. Awamori. A-W-A-M-O-R-I. You have to be careful because if you, if you don't pronounce it carefully, people will think you're talking about Awamori Prefecture. I, actually, I always have to like double check myself every time. If I'm going to refer to Aomori Prefecture or Aomori the beverage, yep. I pause every time I have to say one of those words to make sure I'm not saying one or the other. Because Actually, what, what does it mean, Aomori? I mean, this made of two characters? That's a great question. And that kind of brings us into some of the history, which we're going to get to later. But there's a few different theories for why it's called Aomori. And nobody's entirely sure. But one thing that uh, we are sure about is that the distilled beverages from Okinawa, before it was known as Okinawa, were at one time, of course, made from millet. And millet is awa. And that's one of the theories behind why awamori is called awamori. You got to pronounce that W. If you don't pronounce a W, nobody understands what you're talking about. Awamori, right? Um, another reason is, of course, the bubbling, right? The, the foam, the awa from, from uh, fermentation, also from distillation, right? And I also remember hearing a third theory, which is from Sanskrit. I believe awamuri is a word related to alcohol in Sanskrit. I think that's a little bit far-fetched, but it's in there. People okay. have, I've heard that a couple of yeah, times. Yeah, if anybody has heard that or is willing to look into that, I would be very curious because yeah. that that's that seems that seems feasible. What? That Distillation is from Mesopotamia, right? you exactly. Know? It's exactly. not out of the it's it not out be, of the question. Right? I mean even just looking at a word like tea or something like that. You've got similarities in pronunciation all across the globe. You got two ways way to say tea, right? It's right. tea or cha. It seems very reasonable that, that there's that there are historical ties there. And importantly for, you know, fans of the show, it is Shochu's uncle. Ah. This is true, <laughs> right? Without <That's> Awamori, <laughs> you Shochu might be a very different thing from what it is today. Who yeah. knows? You know, yeah. the history could have played out very differently. Mm. Yeah. Um, I even think it wouldn't exist. Well, I mean, it would have. There would have been distillation, I believe, because the still came in through Co the mm. Korean route as well. Mm. And we, we can get to that in in a moment. But it could have been quite different. It, it definitely could have. I think the southern influence from the Ryukyu Kingdom going up through the islands of Amami, up through you know Yakushima, Tanegashima, and into Satsuma into modern-day Kagoshima that had a huge influence. It, it, you know, you just can't discount it at all on the spirits that we enjoy today. But before we get there, why don't we start with, um, you know, of course, we're, we're attempting today to educate everyone about Awamori, and we want people to enjoy it more and to look for it more. Yeah. But I want to ask you, first and foremost, what's your experience with it, gentlemen? 
Justin, you, you know, know what I mean? I, yeah, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show before or not, but actually probably the first Japanese alcohol that I started proactively pursuing was actually Aomori. It wasn't sake. I was able to access sake much easier, more easily, right? right. Just because of its re- it was readily available wherever you went. And so of I course. drank it regularly, but it wasn't something I went out of my way to drink. It was just something, it was what I chose to drink when I went out. But I was actually, when I was, when I first came here, I was living down in Kansai. And for some reason or another, there was like this little like Okinawan, it wasn't an izakaya, it was almost like a cafe, really close to where I worked, just around the block from where I worked when I was down there. And they had this map, this sort of like flavor map on the wall. Mm-hmm. And they always had, in my memory, it feels like a lot, it might've been less, but it was probably 30 or 40 different types of aomori. That's impressive. Across actually. this like sort of flavor map. And that was sort of my first real encounter with it. And everything I tried was exceptional and really enjoyable. And at the time, I didn't have, you know, outstanding language skills or I wasn't there with somebody. Nobody took me there to teach me about Awamori. It wasn't like, oh, let's go for Okinawa and whatever tonight. It was completely by chance of just being and working in that area and going out for lunch every now and then looking for, you know, a quick bite and whatnot. Stumbling across this place and being like, weird, what is what is this? And going back in the evening and just cool very like very laid back cafe like atmosphere and this wild breadth of selection of aomori and so i just started drinking the stuff but again i didn't have any sort of knowledge base whatsoever and so i was just sort of like yeah. grabbing at mm-hmm. things um but it was like the first it was the first beverage where i was like i'm going to go out of my way for this because there's something really really great here but then after that life sort of guided me in a different direction. Sure. There wasn't, I didn't I ever run into anything else to hook me onto that next stage, but it was the first thing that I, that really like clicked with me actually. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, and I had to get uh, out of my way because my, f- I mean, my first experience with Awamori was, was over there. I mean, that wow. was my, my first visit to um, Miyakojima, mm. um, some of the islands of this uh, small archipelago within the Okinawan islands. And I remember visiting two distilleries over there Mm-hmm. And so that was where I learned everything at the same time, actually, uh, how it's made. And um, the first time I experienced the the, the, the diversity of uh, Awamori, even in a single location. Sure. Yeah, there's a bunch of different yeah. good distilleries on that mm-hmm. island. Yeah, I think one was um, Miyako no Hana or Miyanohana. Miyanohana. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah the, the, and then one of my favorites over there is Ikema. They make uh, Niko Niko Taro, which I which I love. And it's a, such a happy sounding yeah, Niko Niko Taro. <laughs> yeah, and it has the it has the it's not the Hino Maru, it's the Hino Shikaku. It's like a, mm-hmm. a square sun on the label, very uh, we, uh, against a, a baby blue background, very distinctive. Made by a, a Toji with one arm. Really? Yes, Taro San. Mm-hmm. And he happens to be the uncle of a friend of mine. So he was at uh, my, my other friend's wedding, that, mm-hmm. which happened to be in Miyakojima. I, I love the place. I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of Miyakojima. It's, it's fantastic. And they have got, they've got very good awamori. That's what I remember very well. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember very well? <laughs> this is, see, this is the stereotype about awamori. And I think we should back up a second. What is awamori? Well, you know, it's a spirit made from rice. Okay, and it's the indigenous spirit of Okinawa Prefecture, and it tends to be bottled between uh, thirty and forty-five percent alcohol. It can go lower, but you know, typically thirty percent is standard. Uh, undiluted awamori will be forty-three, forty-four, but it is 
a very, very important part of the culture and the, the, you know, the, the socialization, everything that happens in, in Okinawa tends to involve Awamori in some way, shape, or form. Now, I, I actually have to take par that back partly because younger generations are not as into it yeah. as older generations were. Younger yep. people have their smartphones and they don't need their hooch quite as much as yeah, yeah, yeah. our generation yeah. did. Yeah. But it's certainly been rough going over the last decade or so for the industry, as I'm sure you guys yeah. have heard. Yeah, now um, there's what? There's a total of 47 distilleries left? 46, 47? I think there's, you know, it's hard to say because some, some years not every distillery is active. Yeah. I think there are 47 active licenses okay. and 46 distilleries that were making Aomori last okay. year. Yeah. I, I could be very wrong, though. Yeah. Um, I might be off by a couple of distilleries. Yeah, so whenever I talk to people about that, the way they address that, almost boasting, we have 47 distilleries. But when you flip it around, you only have yeah, you only five, have whenever, forty-seven. You've got forty-seven, and then that number's not going to go up anytime soon. No, it's probably not. I mean, it's right. it's actually very close to the number of distilleries, the official distilleries that were near Shurijo Castle. Okay, you know, back during the Ryukyu Kingdom, at its yeah. max, I think there were forty licenses handed out. Okay. Um, but it's yeah, it's not many. We have to say that Okinawa, as as a region, covers a huge part of the of the of, of the sea. Of the, it of, certainly of, does. Yes, I'm not entirely sure how many. I know it's at least 150 islands, mm -hmm. and I think there are Awamori distilleries on at least I want to say nine, but to be safe, I'm going to say eight islands. It's eight or nine islands have distilleries on them. And it wasn't always that way, though. Like, as I said before, most of the distilleries were near the, the castle. But let's, let's, let's start, from, start from the very beginning, because that's a good place to start, yeah. as Mary Poppins, I believe, once <laughs> said. Obviously, we're dealing with distillation traditions. And these originated in what is now called the Middle East and spread out concentrically. Like, pretty much at the same time, you know, you had, you had vodka and eau de vie, and you had whiskey, and you had the... The, all these different traditions branching into rum. And then you, on this side of the world, we had Thai distillates and, and mainland Chinese distillates. And they, they all, it's pretty easy to track the progress of distillation technology branching, branching out. And as far as we know, the best guess is that the, the traders who were, I mean, it was a hub. Okinawa was a trade hub. It was a very conveniently located set of islands or archipelago, as, as Sebastian said before. And most people believe that where did distillation come from? Probably from trade with Thailand or through these trade routes. And nobody knows exactly when it started. It's basically late 1400s, early 1500s. They're, per, they're absolutely sure distillation began in Okinawa. But there's no real hard data on this, as I'm sure you can imagine. There's a, a bunch of, there is actual written records of people, for example, visiting a warehouse that th had, different sections for differently aged products, but they weren't sure if that was wine that was being aged or if it was a spirit that was being aged. Mm -hmm. um, they're not really sure when it started, but at least before, I think it was 1534 about, we had distillation in Okinawa and then it started to move north. But before doing so, you know, it became kind of a, it was, I don't know, for lack of a better term, it became a royal wine, mm -hmm. I guess. As I said before, 30 families that lived in, I think it was three different mura, three different little villages near the castle. It was, what was it? Akata mura, um, 
I'm going to mess this up. Sakiyama Mura and then Torihori Mura, I believe, were the th- only the three little places where you could make Awamori at that time. 30 families initially f- expanded to 40. And if you'd made bad Awamori, you were a villain. You were cor- coronavirus. They were going to stomp your butt out. Yeah. You know, it was, there was not much worse thing you could do because everything that you made belonged to the king. Yeah. If you made bad hooch, yeah. they were going to persecute your family. They pro- mm-hmm. I think they probably, they probably exiled people. Wow. Throw them to a far-flung island. And that's probably why we have uh, Oamori in other islands. That's it, that is it. That's why we have, of course, that's why we have Shochu in the Tokyo Islands, right? Down south yeah. of here in like Aogashima. That's yeah. because it was an exile island. Yeah. And I think they brought the technology with them from Satsuma. Yeah, right? totally. Well, that's yeah. true. If you look at just a lot of just the general island culture, I mean, you've got thousands of islands in Japan, actually. Yeah. And if you yeah. look at a lot of them, a lot of them are places that were used for <laughs> exile, exile and things yeah. like that. And so you have people that have brought culture, not just spirits, but food temples you've got temples and shrines that have the same names as places back in kyoto or back in yeah. other places because it's all it's just amazing were, how many yeah. islands have that story yeah. as part of their history and they're all they're all kind of an interesting hodgepodge of like wherever people were exiled from yep and so you get these interesting mixes of culture that then birth these new things that are kind of this different dimension of stuff that they had back home so it's yeah kind of cool. it's 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 fascinating and it's so much fun to visit some of these small islands around the country because you hear these stories like oh man that guy must have been a jerk yeah. but you know he, he helped yeah. bring some pretty cool stuff yeah. over here absolutely um, so, you know, in the beginning, Awamori, once they started distilling here, it wasn't only rice like it is today. They used millet, like I said before. They, Of course, they used sweet potatoes once those hit the islands. And they used sugar cane. And I think they also used rice, but I'm, I'm sure they just used whatever was cheapest. Whatever was available. Yes, and, yeah. exactly. And that continued for quite a while until around the Meiji Restoration in the 1800s. And then it kind of became closer to what it is today. Yeah. It was rice and almost entirely... Indica rice, so Thai, as they call it here, Thai Mai or Thailand, Thailand, um, long grain, not sticky rice, um, but often broken rice, you know, a lot of cracked, um, you could call it, I guess you call it inferior, it tends to be cheaper if you buy cracked rice, of course, as we know from the, from the sake world. Yep, absolutely. And that's often what's used to this day. And that's, yeah, that's always been a question of mine is what was the driving factor behind selecting Thai rice? Was it cost or is it because what Thai rice allows the distilleries to do with it? That's a really good question. I think there's, there's elements of a lot of things here. I think, there's, I think it's easy to work with when you're making koji. I think it, it's something that they were used to working with through centuries of trade, getting rice shipped in from Thailand. And I think it also is relatively inexpensive yeah. when you're comparing it with domestic rice, of course. Do we have awamori made from um, rice grown in Okinawa? We do. We do now. And that's a rather recent it's pretty thing. few and far between. They are, the yes. rare cases, right? I was at the Shimazake Festa last year. They got canceled this year, of course, uh, in April. But last year at the Shimazake Festa in Okinawa, Naha City, and every distillery was there. And I probably sipped... Uh, six million awamori uh <laughs> but i remember taking photos of only three domestically produced rice uh brands there were only three yeah and these was indica rice no it was actually uh japonica. japan rice japonica. yeah japan japonica yeah and yeah i've talked to a couple of places that are either have made that product or are in pursuit of trying to create that product mm-hmm. and it's it's an interesting conversation it seems like it's like it's 
a bit of a hang up for a lot of people is they have a hard time understanding why they are now still dependent on rice from Thailand. Yeah. And getting back to your, you know, sort of your question or comment, what is what is the driving force behind still making that decision? But when you look at it geographically, I mean, it all it makes just as much, if not more, sense to get something from Southeast Asia than it does from Japan. From here, yeah, it's I mean, pretty actually, damn far away. I mean, if, <laughs> when you when you really think about it, when you really start drawing the lines and look at historically how the lines were drawn, Okinawa is more or less its own country yep. <laughs> in a way, in in a lot of ways, and it's really only been Japan and the way they talk about, say, relatively recently. Yeah, and 100 and 150 years, not quite. Right? And so if you look at its sort of its cultural ties and its trade ties and everything else, kind of no matter how you spin it, it makes more sense. I don't know. How, forcing it into the, uh, I don't know, into the map of Japan almost feels, in a way, depending on how you look at it, it's almost weakening its 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 cultural ties to its beverage. And it's, sure. you know, it's so it's, I don't know. I, I don't know what the right answer is there, but it's. I mean, this is just kind of a personal thing, but the idea of continuing to pursue the possibility of, you know, using um, rice from Thailand and exploring that, I think that's a, I think that's a valuable pursuit. And I think there's a lot of um, viable reasoning to, you know, to stick. Be, it to it stick makes um, Awamori and Ryukyu Awamori, we, you have to put two words together yeah. as a GI quite interesting and, and right? quite unique. Yeah. Because yeah. It's a produce, it's a product which is highly cultural, highly local, really is in relation with the islands, uh, this archipelago's history, but is using a uh, raw material that is not produced. Yeah, 99.9% of the raw material is not produced in Japan. They're dependent on, yeah, raw raw materials from a a neighboring country. Yeah, it is, 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 that is very, that's unique. Right, which is, in a way, I don't know, it's, it's, I well, don't want to say timely. I think it's. I think it's kind of cool, I, in a way. Like uh, it, you know, I mean, it. Al- I feel like it's almost in a position to. Maybe it's timely. Right now, we're we're seeing how close we all are together here, and what these borders really mean. You know, but right. I mean, to actually develop a GI or that sort of association and that relationship with something that does cross borders, I think that's a cool proposition. Yep. And I it's don't. a clear indication of the the historical trade nature of of the people from that time, right? It's, not sure we said it, but GI stands for geographical indication. Yeah. That's right. In this case, it does. Yes. Um, GI, the GI is Ryukyu Awamori, which yeah. is, I can define it. It can be defined as a distilled spirit made from rice and black koji in the islands of Okinawa Prefecture uh, using the Zenkoji Shikomi method, which is the single, like all koji fermentation and then single distillation in a pot still. And that's basically the entirety of it. And black koji being uh, common to every single uh, awamori that's made. And and essential to be considered a dyukyu awamori. That's exactly right. And as far as I understood, developed or domesticated, I don't know how to use it, in in Okinawa. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, there were there's a little bit of confusion over this because there were a bunch of kojis that were brought in. I know Satsuma brought in like a bara koji and yep. there was a bunch of stuff going back and forth. But yeah, I think it, it ended up being one that was isolated and, you know, developed in in Okinawa. And there was a lot of fear after the after World War Two when when, you know, Naha got bombed to smithereens and we lost 
Awamori that had been aged for close to 200 years, maybe even more than 200 years, it was all gone. And the domesticated, the, the reliable black koji that a lot of the distilleries had been using was also lost. It was, in, it was buried under, under rubble. And that was, that was obviously with modern scientific technology would not have been such a huge concern. But at that time, it was like, oh, geez, we can't even really restart yeah. because we don't even have our koji. Now, luckily, the story goes that they found it under the rubble growing on uh, tatami that was under yeah. there and they were able to resuscitate it and continue using it. So I, I don't know if all distilleries use that exact same strain. I don't think they do, but there is that connection to, to the pre-war era. And I mean, black koji has a very distinct smell. Yes. That's, I mean, when you visit a, a local distillery, that's, that's smell is just something very special. Yes. And it's also, it's everywhere in the distillery, right? Because yeah. it clings to the walls. It, the, the older styles, anyway, just you can't control it. It's like, I don't know. It's like, you know, when you blow on a dandelion, that's, you know, and it yeah, goes yeah, poof yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. That's kind of how black koji behaves. And it just takes off in the wind yeah. and grows wherever it lands. Yeah. Black snow. Yeah, it is like black snow. Exactly. Very, very fluffy black snow. And it does amazing things with the, with the drink. If we can talk about, maybe we can move on to how it's made. I mean, basically, we're talking a simplified version, a simplified process when compared to shochu. If you listen to shochu 101, or if you've uh, looked into this on the internet, then you'll notice, you'll know that you have a two fermentation process, typically, and then distillation, then maturation, and filtration, bottling, shipping. In Awamori, You've only got one fermentation step, and it's 100% rice koji. So however much you plan to use, if it's going to be one ton of rice for your mash, all of that's koji. Let me say that again. All of that's koji. So it's, it's unique to show to in that sense. And I think this came up before. Basically, you could, and I'll probably get in trouble for this, you could consider awamori to be a type of shochu, but most shochu cannot be considered a type of awamori. Yeah. Right? Yep. Now, awamori can be made outside of Okinawa. I have a bottle at home that is made in Kochi Prefecture. Yeah. It's not Ryukyu awamori, but it is awamori. So that's what I was going to check with you. So the, the designation is for Ryukyu awamori. That's right. right. The GI is right? Ryukyu only. Right. But if I was going to take some rice up in Akita and use some black koji and you know, and, and do that. I could, I could just call it you awamori. Could, you could call it awamori. I'm not right. even sure if you have to use black koji to call it awamori. Right, because there's no designation for it, right? All this designated is ryukyu awamori. Exactly. So ryukyu right? awamori is very carefully protected, but awamori by itself has a lot of flexibility. Yeah. More like shochu tends yeah. to have. Yeah. Um, I don't, except yeah. for iki. Yeah, I don't want to take us off on a tangent because I know we're going to get down down that road toward the end, we're going to talk about sort of where it's at now sure, and where sure. it's going. Yep. Um, it's maybe worth coming back to later, but I mean, I know that there are places that are either making or planning to make awamori outside of Japan. Sure. I mean, that's something that's going to start happening. Yeah. And most people don't know what Ryukyu awamori is, but they might've heard of awamori if they're paying attention to their spirits and sure, things sure, like sure. that. And so awamori as a category diversifying without those parameters in place it's it's going to be 
it could go back in time. It could, it could go back in time. It could be interesting. It could we'll be millet. Kind of where that it goes. could be, yeah, you know, right. Right. We'll see. We'll get back to that. But so you take the 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 starter fermentation is they call it zen koji shikomi, and the starter fermentation is the only fermentation. Rice is steamed. Rice is is uh, washed, and then steamed, and then drained. And then you do the koji propagation just as you would do in the Nihonshu world or the Shochu world. And depending on what style, I mean, if you're doing a hine koji, it might take, that's a slightly older school style, it might take three days. Uh, but typically it's similar, a couple of days to propagate and get the koji to grow at a healthy level. And then it's all added together. And boom. And you add the rice, or sorry, the yeast. You add the yeast and you're off. And as you know, black koji creates a pretty spectacularly acidic fermentation, yeah. which means that it tends to be very pretty safe in a tropical or subtropical environment. You don't get a lot of mash spoilage down there. Yeah. It tends to be a vigorous fermentation, and then you distill. After fermenting from anywhere from 10 to 20 days, I guess, is pretty typical. A little bit less than two weeks to a little bit more than about three weeks, I think, is pretty normal. Yeah. And then distillation in... If you've ever seen a normal, uh, if you've ever seen a pot still in the West, you're probably thinking about these copper, beautiful things. And we don't have a lot of those in Japan yeah. yet, except for places in, that are doing, the, you know, whiskey, whiskey distillation, yeah. and <laughs> gin distillation. They import them from Italy. They're, they tend to be stainless steel, but they don't, they're not upright many times. So I guess some places have upright um, pot stills. And you may have seen pictures of them. The, the typical, the, the stereotypical awamori pot still is actually kind of lying on its side. And it's and it's difficult to get very detailed pictures, isn't it? I mean, that's one of the secrets. Sure, it's a trade secret. Everybody no uses it differently. Every you know, they're not the ones that I've seen, the Yokogata, the the horizontal ones, they're not particularly high tech as far as I've seen. They don't have a lot of meters and gauges on them. It is really down to the skill and the expertise of the person operating it. And the shape. The, the shape is yeah. everyone's different. Yes. Yep. And it's yeah, it's it's similar to the shochu uh, system or tradition in that everyone's different and every person who uses it has different intuition that's influencing their decisions. And you get two different people using the same still, you get very different distillates, I imagine. Uh, more modern s distilleries, of course, have computer-operated stills, just like in the shochu world and the whiskey world. But... Well, I have lots of questions already. I don't know about our listeners, but... Okay, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me get to the end. I'm going to talk yeah, about one what, more that's step. That's why I'm mentioning yeah. it. <laughs> one, more, one more step. So the last step that's really important for awamori is aging. And it's important because... It's not super, super common anymore, at least not for bottled products, but the Shitsugi method. Shitsugi is a Solera-style uh, fractional blending manner of mixing different, different vintages of Awamori together to create a multi-generational, multi-vintage product that is often consumed in the home. And it's, it's the situation where you have, just imagine a bunch of gigantic clay pots side by side, and we'll say that on the left is the oldest spirit. It was, it was put in there 20 years ago. And then splayed out to the right, you've got 19 more pots all the way to the far right where you've got the one that was made last year, right? And when you take distill it out of the old pot on the left, then you do a cascade. 
You go from the second oldest pot into the oldest to replenish and so on all the way to the right. And then you pour brand new spirit, brand new awamori into the pot, the newest pot. And that's, a, that's the shitsugi method. And the idea is that you can basically be drinking sort of some awamori from a long, long time ago. And like I said, before the war, there were pots that apparently were at least 200 years old and they're lost forever. And the, the different products we may see from a, a single distillery mm-hmm. um, in a shop, for example, are they related to different blends that you can uh, that they're making or is that the main yes, factor? definitely. I mean, if we talk about Chuko uh, Shuzo that we were discussing before because they have a fantastic pottery program that sits side by side, coexists with their awamori distillation, they have a variety of different products that vary in terms of the yeast strains that they use, that vary in terms of the alcohol percentage and uh, uh, also particularly the number of years that they have been aged. And also, you know, other factors, including the way that they were fermented. Um, so there is quite a bit of variety. I don't think you'll find a distillery that has quite as much variety as a really healthy, really creative uh, Nihonshu but there's still I, th- I would say Chuko has at least eight flagship brands and then a whole bunch of seasonal stuff that comes out yeah. with regards to the the shitsugi and sort of with regards to vintage so is that shitsugi is that method is that something that is reserved primarily as a practice in the private home or restaurant or, or residence or is that a process that is carried out within the distillery. So for example, if you see a product that's a, mm-hmm. an aged aomori that yep. is five years or 10 years, is that representing five years of shitugi, of that process happening? Or is that a straight up five years aged product? Or could it be one or the other without? Great, that's a great question. I would say that these days, the products that are sold to consumers are not shitsugi blended. More often than not, if you want to go and get some aged product, and you can often buy the clay jar as well, it's going to just be something that sat in a cave for five years or 12 years or 20 years, whatever you prepaid for it to sit there for. And there's a lot of these programs around Okinawa where you can go to the distillery and then visit their aging cave, a limestone cave underground, and then pay to age your own awamori there for a certain number of years. Um, and this is an important thing to bring up, koshu. Koshu is aged alcohol. In Okinawa, they call it kusu, K-U-S-U, with a long first U, kusu. And kusu, the, the rules now, and this is why shitsugi isn't such a thing anymore, at least commercially, is that all of the spirit in the bottle, in order to be labeled kusu, has to be at least three years old. Now, if you're doing shitsugi, then it, you've got all sorts of different ages in there, and you can't mm-hmm. really yeah. clearly quantify what's yeah. in the bottle. Yeah. But with the koshu regulations, which didn't go into effect all that long ago, you really have to be very clear about what, how old the spirit is. Yeah. And if you want to call something 10 years old, that means that at least 50% of the spirit has to be 10 years old. And, okay. and nothing can be younger than that. Okay, nothing can be younger yeah. than that. So you could, okay. have a, you could have a 5, a 10, and a 17 blend, but you have to call it the youngest spirit. Mm-hmm. Whatever is youngest in there it has to be that. Is the is the three year regulation is that actually regulated or is it suggested? Because like for koshu for sake, it's they say they say three years is a general rule, but there's not actually anything 
written down formally that says it has to be, but it's just sort of a, it's kind of common knowledge that three years is the minimum? You know, actually, the way that I understand it, it's a rule. I think it's a policy. Yeah, it's it's sort of a shared common knowledge. We have common understanding that this is right. the nature of this. So is there any, you know, the you know, heavy hand of the law that will come down on anybody who puts a two-year age spirit in a in something that says koshu on it. I don't think that'll happen, but I guess the, the blowback will come from the general public who once they find out, then it would be quite bad for the reputation of whoever packaged that product. The public or the other producers yeah, that are looking at that and going, yeah, we're well, not going to work with you, you anymore. Doing? Yeah, what, you're what, what breaking you the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's... Yeah, koshu is, is obviously something that a lot of people will look for. If you if you go to a place that has awamori on the menu, you'll see oftentimes a separate section for koshu or kus, as we said before. And it's it's lovely. You get younger product that tends to be fresher. It sometimes has some fruity qualities to it. I mean, I, I've tasted melon and I've tasted banana, and I dare say I've even tasted strawberries a couple of times. It, But it definitely has – it's a – it's a full-bodied, very, very complex spirit that, you know, if you're not, if you're not used to drinking spirits all the time, then you, it might be bracing. It might be like, whoa, wow, that's got a lot going on type of drink. If you get into kusu and the older it gets, the, the, you know, the more interesting, the more rounded it gets, you often will get something that I love and a lot of people really enjoy, the interaction between the compounds in the aging spirit and the clay pot often dependent on the yeast strain that was used to during fermentation but still you'll often get the appearance of vanillin yeah which is a really really nice soft you know vanilla flavor or or aftertaste almost or 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 hint that is much sought after in the kusu world it's beautiful when you find a great expression of that it is it's stunning yep it, it is a very enjoyable very very enjoyable iteration of awamori whiskey lovers please do try yeah exactly yeah. that's that's something for them to come and sniff out absolutely yeah, so let me ask my question go ahead first one <laughs> is awamori produced all year long i uh, depending on the distillery yes larger distilleries produce all year long because climate in Okinawa is quite different from, from Honshu and, and northern Japan with less seasonality, I would say. That's, that's absolutely so correct. It's, it's the fermentation will work all year long. Especially in more temperature-controlled and climactic-controlled modern distilleries, it's not an issue anymore. But do you think, do you know if in the past there was a season, an awamori season? Or? I believe it mirrored, it was the cooler month, so it mir- okay. the semi-cooler month, so it mirrored the Nihonshu season to okay. some extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're also, if, if you're using rice from Thailand, you're not s- as limited to supply as once a year, too. There you've got they're, multiple they're producing, harvest. You've got, got multiple harvests a year. Yeah. yeah, and so you don't have this extended period where you don't have access to... One word you didn't mention yet, yet uh, but that uh, sake lovers will ask about is, is polishing. You sure. I mean, rice polishing. Uh-huh. Any... Minimal. Minimal. Minimal polishing. Right, it's it, because of distillation being in the mix. It's less of a, it's less necessary. And many times, I mean, I don't believe that Thai Mai really has. I don't believe that any strain I've seen is is isolating a shinpaku 
the the white heart in the center. I don't think there's any collection of starch. So really scrubbing or sand, polishing too much is just getting rid of material that could be food for the yeast. Yeah, and it's such a, and it's a, such a different shape and it is such it a would, different yeah. composition right. to what you're used what's being used for say not as sake round. is r- running that through a polishing machine you're not gonna it's it's gonna tear it apart it as, does as yeah as it cracks imagine, it'll right? it'll just break but at least it's white it, it is, is. yes yeah. it and has been it has the germ taken out it's been polished what down to 85 to 90 percent at the at the most you partly answered the question but these aromas i mm-hmm. mean we had a, a sake on air special about sake aromas and highlighted the role of yeast in yeah. that um so you already said that I mean, different businesses are using different yeasts yes. or different yeasts within one single distillery. Um, how important is the yeast compared to the distillation and aging process, for example? Wow, that's, uh, a, it's a, that's, that's, an that's a tough question. But I would say, and this is informed by my years in a, in a beer brewery, I just say yeast is, is king. I think yeast is highly underrated in terms of the effect that it has on the final product. Now, I don't want to discount the effect of the maturation process at all because I feel like there's a lot of interesting minerality that comes from these clay pots. And I don't want to, I don't want to poo-poo the, the single-batch fermentation process either because that's got a whole bunch of complexity going on. It's a really interesting... Yeah. And you're 100% koji, which that's a unique property that you very, don't find very, another in shochu and things like that. Ex- exactly. But having acknowledge both of those things i still think that yeast is just i i'm excited right now because there's a lot of experimentation going on with different yeast strains and it takes a long time to isolate a new yeast strain for the alcohol industry it can take a couple of years so but i have visited a a lab in okinawa that's working on yeasts from different flowers chuko uses a lot of mango mango plant yeast i think i, I yeah. Think, yeah i think i saw really that. I really that. interesting right. yeah and so my, my personal uh, perspective is that yeast is huge. Yeah. Well, you see that kind of a mirror in shochu now. You see places that are using, say, like super aromatic sake yeasts and things like that in shochu, and you end up getting these super ginjo-esque shochus. They'll, right. they'll dilute them down to like 20% and mm-hmm. use something really just in your face. And if you if somebody didn't tell you otherwise, you'd, you know, you'd think, well, wow, wow, this is like a, a ginjo... Yeah, it's almost Genshu, like Genshu or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and uh, and don't forget wine yeasts yeah. these days as well. They're Absolutely. everywhere in the shochu industry. How do we want to differentiate it from shochu? Then, great question. So, how is it? How is it similar to shochu? How is it different? the The big difference is that you can only use rice to make awamori. That's the huge difference. They both use pot distillation. That's the same. They're both spirits, obviously, because they use pot distillation. And they use natural ingredients that have koji propagated on them. That's the same. But there's, you know, Ryukyu Awamori just has a few handcuffs on it that the shochu industry does not. And that's ingredients, rice, and koji, black. The shochu industry can use pretty much whatever it wants for koji strains. And it has a much wider array of starch sources that it's allowed to leverage in making uh, its products. So it's similar, but shochu is a bit more diversified, a lot more diversified, sorry. Well, that's also kind of the appeal of Aomori as well, too, is when you 
He said it's got handcuffs on it, but then how much, how much movement can you get out of that limited tool set, right? Well, creativity, exactly. Is, right, is that's where driven by the constraints, as right? Well. Exactly. Sure. You know, being able to say this is all I've got to work with. This is where I'm at. Yep. You know, and so being able to, you know, see the spectrum of that un under those limitations is kind of part of what, uh, part of the appeal of it. Yeah. Right? You, no, you're absolutely right. I'm. You know where the boundaries are. There's so much that has not been done. Yeah. Figure out something cool. And, and for instance, we keep going back to Chuko. This sounds like they're, they're sponsoring this episode, but <laughs> they have a product that I really like called Yoka Koji. And they took it's an the excellent. Yeah. It's really good. They yeah. took the, what it tends to be two days, sometimes three days old school. They stretch the Koji making process to four days and it just unleashes all of these wild layer, layers of aroma and flavor. 43% uh, packaged ABV, and it's phenomenal. It's, it's and it's, and it's, it's not aged. No, it's, 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 it's young. Pretty, it's super young. I think it's a, a year and a half to two years in a tank. When I went down there, I kind of I almost was begging them to tell me, how are you, what are you doing with your koji? How are you making this happen? They wouldn't, they wouldn't tell yeah, me. Yeah, they so. they're not going to let that out. Yeah. But Should I buy it in a bottle or in a clay pot? That's a great question. I think you should do both. <laughs> Uh, bottles are obviously more common, but if you go into a decent izakaya, an Okinawan izakaya, or if you go into a decent bottle shop with Awamori, they will have, they look like clay urns almost, um, and they can hold a liter, two liters, three, five liters. Five liters gets a little expensive and heavy, but yeah, they're a lovely thing to take home. If you have one of those clay pots, you can reuse it. In Okinawa, they don't really wash them. You just rinse them. You rinse them out. You don't want to put any soap in there because it'll soak into the into the clay. Porous. Yeah, it'll, it's yeah. a little bit porous. And you can start aging your own aomori or any other spirit that you want. Mm -hmm. And that's a lovely experiment. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a, it's a whole new dimension that you can do your own uh, yeah. aging and even even blend, actually. Probably, right, right. You know? Yeah, you can, Yeah, absolutely. You could make your own house blend, mm -hmm. you know, and... This, but this is this begs an this brings up an important point. It's not easy to find, you know, Aomori outside of Okinawa. We were kind of lamenting this before yeah. we got on the mic this afternoon. There are some decent places in larger cities to go and sit down and have some Okinawan food or something close to it, and you know, a few selections of of Aomori. But it's really not that easy to track down much of the time. And I know. You, yeah. Justin, you've had a lot of issues with this. Yeah, I've been. I I try to even like really reputable bottle shops and wholesalers and places that carry excellent sake lineups and shochu lineups and as well as wine and a lot of other things, spirits and whatnot. And you go and ask, and there's maybe five different products on the shelf, and usually three to four of those are from the same producer or two producers. And yeah, then there's like the one place. outlier or something. And that tends to just be really common. You go to the big department stores that have a lot of different product. They have one or two things there and it's just really, and again, it's all generally the same two or three producers, maybe five producers. And yeah. it's really, and nothing against those. Honestly, some of the large producers make some fantastic, fantastic and stuff. And Chuko's one of them. And Chuko's one of them. They're doing incredible work. So it's not a matter of large or small, better or worse. It's just that there's just not a lot readily available in places where people go to buy drinks and Very spirits. True. Very you know? true. And then searching online, sure, you can pop online, but it's 
especially with a, a a category a category that for most people is so they just don't have a lot of experience with you want to be able to talk to somebody right you want to be sure. able to have a recommendation right. you want right. some you want mm -hmm. something to lean on to yeah. you know when you're making a purchase especially when you're getting into kusu and things yeah. like these and you're if you're going to spend $50 or $100 or $300 on something that's been aged what am i getting into yeah. this thing is in this lovely looking play, clay pot is this legit or is this a souvenir scam? You know, it's yeah. hard. To, it's, it's hard, hard to, tell. to tell. Sure, it's hard to tell. And so, and that's and that's a challenge here in Tokyo. Like I go actively hunting. I'm trying to yeah. find this stuff, yeah. and it's not easy. Yeah. But, well, there is some here, and well, I, I want to mention that. I mean, Absolutely. if you come to Tokyo, um, the information center yeah. uh, does carry a few references. That's true, and you can try and. We're invited to come several times because they change occasionally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. But might, it's might be one of your most reputable sources in the city, actually. Yeah, yeah. At least in terms of, you know, they're they're very affordable, and somebody is here who can talk about them. That's a big thing, right? Yeah. Um, another, you you mentioned uh, souvenirs, Sebastian. One of the one thing that you see this on Instagram all the time. The photos are endless. People who go to Okinawa, they put photos of. Awamori on Instagram, but many times it's you know it's habushu, right? Mm -hmm. It's a it's a pit yeah. viper that has that is uh, coiled up in a in a jar of generally awamori, but it's uh, everywhere down there. It's quite it's yeah. kind of funny, you yeah. know. It's mostly just a it's a gimmick, but it's a joke. It's mm -hmm. a dare. It's a surefire way to get a hangover, in my experience. Yeah. Um, and it's what is it traditionally a virility. Yeah, <laughs> angled type of thing. Yeah, where where it's not f funny actually is when it, it creates confusion about yeah. what armory is. Yeah, because, you're exactly I mean, right. You define it as how it's made and its history and its culture, but in the world of of spirits and drinks globally, it's yes. it's really hard to define uh, what armory and even shochu are. Yeah. Um, right. For for the Western consumer in particular, that's what I mean. Yeah. So the habushu doesn't and, help. And the the habushu doesn't help. Yeah. Because yeah. it is not. This kind of outcomes. I agree with you completely. Yeah. And when I, I looked into it a couple of years back, and it was like in the top three like keyword searches w associated with Okinawa. It was, was like, habushu. Yeah, it was like in English. Yeah, it was karate. It was karate and habushu, and I can't remember what the other one was, but it was probably it was, the it was aquarium, related, right? No, it was actually it was related to the the military base. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> Which sure again enough. makes sense. Makes sense. It's in the news for one reason or another. Yeah. Usually, so you know, if we go, if we swing to the other end of the spectrum, there's a chain of Okinawan themed. Izakaya that stretches all the way up here to Tokyo and maybe beyond called Paikaji, P-A-I-K-A-J-I. -A -A and I like that chain because they often will play Okinawan music in there, you know, many nights of the week. So you can be in there drinking and having fun with your friends or, and family. And then there's a small performance and it's it's fun. It's, it's folksy. It's communal. I really enjoy it. Cool. And a lot of other Okinawan themed places will do the same if you just check for it. How do you drink it? I can't believe we haven't talked about that yet. Yeah. Great question, Sebastian. And, you know, I'm going to just go with the standards, which are on the rocks and, and mizuari, which means a little bit of cool water added to a, a rocks glass with, with ice in there. But a lot, of the, a lot of the really, really complex and rich awamori, I would recommend drinking straight, maybe as an after-dinner drink. You can get into cocktails. The Aomori Meisters Association sponsors a cocktail competition every year. So they're definitely trying to go down that route. Oyuari is a big thing for Shochu. What about the Awamori? You know what? 
I initially resisted it when I was drinking Awamori, but then I heard enough people talking about it, and yes, it absolutely does work in Because many cases. Oyumari, Oyu means hot, warm water, hot water, so yes. it just brings more of the bouquet out. That's so. right. That's You're absolutely right. And uh, there are many, many, many evenings where I will ask for my Awamori Oyuwari. That's a mouthful right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can I have my Awamori Oyuwari, please? Mm -hmm. Just simply with soda is an option, you know. That's what I was down there last year, and I was talking to those folks. It sounds like a lot of places are trying to, for better or worse, kind of jump on the shochu and or whiskey sort of bandwagons and get stuff that's sort of, you know, what's the Aomori highball like? Using these really light sort of refreshing beverages and replacing whatever the standard, you know, base liquor, yeah, they, base alcohol is right. with Aomori and As you mentioned earlier, young people, yeah, yeah they people, don't go yeah. on Awamori. They don't order Awamori. They, they order, don't. They're on yeah. they're on two highs and cheap beer, mostly, yeah. yeah, as far as I can tell. And yeah, the industry itself has been looking for ways to create new markets. And for a while, they were hitting it big overseas. There was a while where, where sales of Awamori were, were surging. Mm. And that was, that's a good 15 years ago now. What and drove that, do you know? You know, I'm not entirely sure. I think it was just... It was partly the whole Honkak Shochu boom, and it was it was kind of sidecar to that. But there was also a time when that reached all the way over to New York City, and you started seeing bottles of Aomori popping up in Japanese places. And I'm not entirely sure what fueled that, but it died out pretty quick. And they haven't recovered. And they're looking to... The thing that seems to sort of be sticking when they throw things at the wall is the co cocktails. So I think there's a lot of a lot of energy being thrust in that direction. And I'm not entirely sure how successful it's going to be. I would say, you know, you're making it with Thai rice. Why don't you pair it with Thai food? Try that out. You know, I think that's that's an idea that's come up several times. Well, I would say that Awamari is very easy to pair yeah. in, oh, in yes. general. I, I mean, totally agree with I mean, you. Yeah. Again, little acidity. Mm -hmm. Quite aromatic, but it's not overpowering. Sure. I mean, um, if you go a little bit higher on the alcoholic spectrum, just a little bit, you can. It really can stand up to heavy meat preparations, yeah. spicy, f spicy dishes. It can cut through that. It can be a palate cleanser of sorts. And and if you find the right balance, not not much bitterness actually. That's right. Yeah, mm. I I agree. I mean, with balance you. with between with water and between water and amaro. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's all it's I as far as I can tell, it has always been enjoyed that way. Yeah. Um, in terms of if we can, we're kind of getting towards the end of our time limit here, but future potential and challenges, I think this is something mm. that, um, obviously the industry is very interested in learning, you know, what, are, what are the barriers to entry into different markets? What are the hurdles that we have to get over to interest even our, our home consumers in this drink? And I don't know, do you guys have any thoughts about, about, The your experts on the domestic market. What challenges do you see for Aomori at home? For me, it seems like if I have to communicate it as a product, somebody overseas or internationally, it's an easier product to communicate than shochu. You have so many less variables, right, to yeah, have to I, explain to somebody. I see. I totally and get what you're saying. And yeah. it's isolated to such a specific region. Mm -hmm that it's 
all of it makes sense. If you tell it to somebody, they, they can go, okay, I can, I get it. They may not have tried it. Mm-hmm. They may not know what it is, but it's really easy to communicate what it is to somebody and yeah. why it exists. The 30 second you know, elevator pitch is pretty is simple. It's way isn't it? easier than trying to pitch to show you. So from a communication standpoint, in a way it seems almost easier. Sure. Just, you know, it's just, and that's, I don't know, just kind of my personal experience. If all of a sudden I have to, I mean, it's easy if you have lots of time and you start talking about the appeal of Shochu and all the diversity and the different interpretations, all the things you can do, it's great, but, and it's fantastic. Shochu is amazing, but it takes a lot more time to explain. It's complicated. It's complicated. And yeah, I don't, I just generally find Aomori a, a much more, in many cases, it almost feels like a more persu- persuasive proposition. It's like a straight, initially, straightforward pro- it's, it's a pretty straight shot, right? You mm-hmm. know, and it's, and so from that standpoint, it almost feels easier. Be an easier sell. Yeah. But the next step is, after I heard your story, I want to try. And where can I get it? Where can I get it? Yeah. I mean, it's through that overseas yeah. opportunities to sample Awamori and uh, and do a comparative tasting in particular mm-hmm. to try to get an idea of what it can be and and find the style that you like that you like best uh is a challenge yeah it certainly is it certainly is and that's that's one thing that the i know the industry is trying to rectify this they are trying to get more information out there they are attempting to create more opportunities for people to enjoy the drink side by side but it's still very early days and there's not a whole lot of funding behind that effort yeah, I guess but, that's probably one issue too, is that amongst all the categories and all the stuff in Japan, that at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot that ends up being left for Aomori. And that's they're, they're kind of left to, and with a limited number of producers. And, and it's all like one that. prefecture. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to find other prefectures really yeah. knocking down doors to go and support Aomori, yeah. right? You got you don't really have anybody to team up with. So no, you're kind of limited to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it is, they're, they're kind of off on their own in a sense. So it is a, it's tough for them. They are, they are working at it. Jetro Naha is, is trying to sponsor events and trying to, to use the limited funds that it has to promote the category as much as possible. But, you know, Sebastian's right. It, we just need to f- create more opportunities to taste these drinks and to learn about them firsthand. And I think step number one is creating a booth at Naha Airport, International Airport, of course, where people can freely taste them before they get on the plane. I don't know the legality of that necessarily. I'm not sure if you're allowed to do yeah. that. Maybe that's why they don't. I think you can. Um, I oh, don't well, you, see they, why I've you seen could. it. I've seen I mean, it at Narita. Do, I mean, well, yeah. Well, Narita, they do all kinds of tastings for nothing. You go to the duty-free shops and stuff like that. They do tastings all the time. So sure. there's, you know, and then it you've got, and even if you wanted to charge people for it, you could still do it. You, you know, do a tasting If you were supported it, you supported it, you know, at cost yeah. or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, it, make it make it accessible. There's a lot of different ways you could go about it. I think they should do that right now. Yeah. They have so many people going through that airport from all over other parts of Asia, from, you know, from the mainland, if you want to call that where we are right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a missed opportunity in my rather short book. Yeah, yeah, but absolutely, absolutely. Over the last couple of years, with mm-hmm. Justin in particular, we met some mixologists mm-hmm. coming to Japan to discover the world of shochu and, and awamori. And I mean, it makes me happy that the, the feedback was, was very good in general. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I mean, I could see that the guys were already thinking about 
how to to use it in in cocktails in particular in, in such a way that it will not denature what it is but on the contrary sort of highlights uh, its 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 bouquets its flavors right um, and and make it a fashionable drink at the same time and if you haven't tried awamori before bug your local distributor about it yeah start start <laughs> to go start just a ask yeah yeah just say hey i want to try this stuff and i know it's available in my country but you don't have it right and they'll if they think they can sell it they will get it yeah absolutely yeah and we we're kind of talking before we got started here is it's the reality is there when it comes to information about awamori it's it's hard to find Mm -hmm. it's they're just it's really scattered you know we're trying to how many you know real authorities are there you know mm -hmm. when it comes to Aomori, whether it's people or institutions and it's even if you go to these places there it's it's they don't still doesn't have all the answers or all the resources all the things that you need so it really is still scattered and so to and a lot of people actually before this episode a lot of people said are you going to do something on Aomori? can you do something on Aomori? we've mm -hmm. been asking this for okay. for a while um and how far can you extend the conversation on Awamori outside of actually experiencing it is hard right now because yeah, there just sure. isn't a lot of information. And so, yeah, I mean, sort of just based on today's discussion, if you have more questions, if there's stuff you're looking for, let us know. You know, we can hopefully help communicate to the people who are, you know, responsible for making the decisions as to what information and what sort of product and what sort of things people have interest in what's needed in order to sort of empower people who have the questions or are looking at for a product, both for personal and professional purposes. So mm -hmm. give us the questions that you have, you know, let us know what you're, what you want to know, what you need, what you're interested in. And hopefully we can, you know, over time, you know, hopefully use those to fuel, you know, Aomori 201 or, you know, sure. other, other avenues for learning about or tasting or trying the product. Right. And on that note, and I think that's a great way to end, but I want to add one little bit of Okinawan language to this. Do it. We're going to do oh, a cheers. They don't it. say kampai down south, yeah. do they? They okay. say kari. 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 And that'll do it for another episode of Sake on Air. Please take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be enjoying the show on. And feel free to send your questions and comments to questions at sakeonair.com, or you can add us at sakeonair on Instagram, Twitter, or even Facebook. You can listen to the show on YouTube as well, and there is more Sake on Air coming your way in two weeks, we promise. Until then, kari. Kari. So Sake on Air is made possible with the generous support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in Tokyo. The show is a co-production between Export Japan and Pots K Productions with editing and sound production by Frank Walter. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Kari. 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 <laughs>